you've been with us this term, you'll know we've been working through the book of Judges and we've now finished it. So over Christmas, we're going to look at two or three passages, perhaps not the normal Christmas passages, but two or three passages that speak of um, Jesus in his earliest days, not quite the, the, the stable, not the manger, but the earliest days. So today, uh, Luke and chapter two, and we're going to read from verse 21. So Luke 2 and verse 21. So children, Jesus has been born. And as you'll see, we're eight days into his life. Eight days into his life. Let's hear the voice of God's spirit to his church this morning. Luke 2, 21. And at the end of eight days, when he, Jesus that is, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ and he came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said Lord now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are the Lord, the giver of life. And we pray now that you would come and take these words that you wrote so many years ago and inscribe them on our hearts. Breathe life into our dry and dusty souls. Bring light into our dark minds, we pray. Might we see the wonders that you've worked and give praise to you and our Father and the Lord Jesus. We ask only in our Saviour's name and on the basis of his merit. Amen. Uh, A little bit earlier, many of you told me that you believe that Jesus Christ has brought endless bliss. Remember that? The 
about, I don't know, about 150 of you, maybe 160 of you told me that about, probably about 20 minutes ago. You got your service sheet. Uh, one of our first hymns, in fact, the first one we sang. Verse two, good Christian men rejoice. Now you hear of endless bliss. Jesus Christ was born for this. Endless bliss. That's why Jesus was born. How's that going for you? Would you describe your life now as endless bliss? Uh, Many of you, probably most of the people in this room, uh, last week told me, told one another, proclaimed to the world that Jesus had come, Emmanuel had come, why? To shut the path to misery. That, that line really jumped out at me. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. We sang it last week at our carol service. I'd never noticed that line before. He came to shut the paths to misery. Children, imagine there was two doors. One is bliss. just means happiness and joy, happy ever after. And another door is misery. And there are two roads leading to them. The carol says that, that Jesus shut the door to misery, for his people at least. Again, how's that going? Do you feel like in your life the door is shut to misery? What is Christianity? What is Christmas all about? Uh, during World War II, C.S. Lewis went to visit a, a factory. Children, C.S. Lewis is uh, the author of the Narnia stories, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And he was, uh, he was at this factory. He was given some questions. It was a bit like a politician. So I think he'd seen them beforehand. So he knew what was coming. But one of the questions was this. Which of the religions of the world gives to its followers the greatest happiness? That was a question from the, the factory worker. What do you think Lewis said? He's a Christian, C.S. Lewis. What do you think he said? No, not. <laughs> not bad. <laughs> he went, uh, well, he started like this. While it lasts, the religion of worshipping oneself is the best. Which religion of all the world's religions give to its followers the greatest happiness? While it lasts, the religion of worshipping oneself is the best. He goes on, I have an elderly acquaintance of about 80 who has lived a life of unbroken selfishness and self-admiration from the earliest years and is more or less, I regret to say, one of the happiest men I know. From the moral point of view, it's very different, very difficult, sorry. I'm not approaching the question from that angle. As you perhaps know, Lewis went on, I haven't always been a Christian. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. And he goes on to say something rude about Americans, so I'll stop there. (laughs) If you want a religion to make you happy, to make you feel comfortable, I don't recommend Christianity. Jesus Christ has come to bring endless bliss. What's going on there? Who's right? Does C.S. Lewis not know his carols? Or are the carol writers hopelessly naive? If we're honest, most of us wouldn't describe our lives as those of endless bliss. We wouldn't feel that the doors to misery are shut. We would know if we're Christians, we would know that actually Our very Christianity, our very following of Christ has brought hardship into our lives. So what's going on and why start here with this uh, Luke 2 passage? Luke 2 helps 
us understand, I think, the tension between those two statements. Jesus Christ has come to bring endless bliss and Lewis's Christianity will not make your life comfortable. And very simply, the resolution is found in waiting. This passage is all about waiting. How are we to wait for the endless bliss promised? Why are we to wait? What does that waiting look like? Luke 2 will hold at least some answers, I hope. Uh, Let's start by seeing that that promise of comfort is true, though. That promise of endless bliss, that promise of the door of misery being shut, that is true and biblical. The carols, I think, are right. You were right to affirm them when you sang them heartily earlier uh, or last week. The promised comfort is the first thing we see. We're looking big picture at the whole passage. We're not going to get into all the details this week. But we see these two people, a man and a woman, Simeon and Anna. Luke really likes introducing people in pairs. Uh, We've already had Mary, Jesus' mother, and Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, each being told about a a wonderful birth that will happen, and each singing a song. And as Luke's gospel goes on, very often he will pair a man and a woman. Sometimes it's in a parable. Uh, Remember the parable of the lost sheep? It's a shepherd, a male shepherd who goes and finds the sheep. And the parable right next door to it is a lost coin, where it's a woman who goes to find the lost coin. He preaches about two Old Testament stories and picks the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the leper. On and on you could go, picking these male-female pairs uh, throughout Luke. as a game for you later. And here we've got Anna and Simeon. Let's start with Simeon. Simeon, we don't know loads about him. We presume he's a priest because he's in the temple a lot, but it's not explicitly said so. Simeon is, again, presumably old in that he'll sing that he's nearly ready to die. But Simeon has been waiting. What's he been waiting for? Verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. Consolation children just means comfort. He's picking up language. In fact, Luke 2 is full of language from the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. We're not going to turn back to it loads because it would take us all day. But it's almost as if um, Luke 2, the kind of background music, um, like the Spotify playlist, is all from Isaiah. And in Isaiah 40, after loads and loads of uh, oracles that God is going to judge the world and judge the nations and beat the Egyptians and beat the Ethiopians, all this sort of thing. And lots of pretty challenging words to God's people. In Isaiah 40, the whole kind of tone changes. It's like going from minor to major. And Isaiah 40 begins, comfort, comfort my people. It's the same word, the consolation word, comfort. Now, that's what I've been waiting for, says Simeon. The comforting of Israel. The endless bliss. The shutting of the door to misery. In other words, he's saying something very similar in verse 30 when he sings his little song. My eyes have seen your salvation. And Anna, this old prophetess in verse 38, speaks about the redemption of Jerusalem. They're all really getting at the same thing. And they're all language from Isaiah 43 to to the end of Isaiah. The closing of the door to misery and the bringing of bliss, of peace, of comfort to Israel. In fact, it may be that Anna herself almost pictures the people of Israel. You might know that in the Bible, very often God is spoken of as the husband and his people as the bride. 
but throughout the Old Testament, that the story very sadly is that after God, as it were, marries his people, um, at least sort of symbolically at Mount Sinai, they leave him consistently. What do we see with Anna? Well, verse 36, here's this bride who we're told just one thing about really, that she was married for seven years and then a widow until she was 84. Married and then lost her husband and again waiting. Perhaps just a picture of Israel. Married, but now seemingly without God. God had been silent at this stage for 400 years. The last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, had preached and gone to his grave about 400 years before Christ was born. Silence, waiting. And now, well, now Simeon and Anna both see Jesus brought to the temple by Joseph and Mary. Why they bring him, we'll look at in just a moment. But they see the, the baby Jesus, who would have looked just like, well, just like little Abel, in fact, even smaller than Abel. Just look like a normal baby. But because they're full of the Holy Spirit, Anna is a prophetess, and I think it's three times we're told Simeon is full of the Holy Spirit, they are supernaturally told by God that this, well, this, this baby is going to be the one who brings comfort, salvation, redemption to God's people. And that's why for Simeon in particular, he bursts into song. Again, there's so much in there we could dive into if we had more time. But just to pick one big theme, it's a salvation for everybody. Verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Children, Gentiles are those who aren't God's people. Anyone who's not a Jew, probably here this morning, most of you, I would assume Gentiles. This great plan to bring comfort, eternal bliss, happiness, shut that door to misery, open the door to glory. It's not just going to be for God's people, but also for, for everybody. It's going to be for the, well, it's not just going to be for the Israelites, but for the Philistines and the Egyptians and the French and the English and the Australians and the Chinese and the Japanese. It's going to be for everybody. And also, of course, verse 32, for your people, Israel. This one comfort here alone is the door to eternal bliss, Simeon sings. It is nowhere else. Now, that, that's not very PC, is it? We, we want to say, look, you've got to follow your own route to happiness. You do you. You follow your heart. If it works for you, go with it. But Simeon and Anna, and far more significantly, God himself behind them as he inspires their words, will have none of that. There is one light to the Gentiles. Simeon doesn't say, look, here's a great Jewish way of salvation, Jesus. And I bet those Druids up in, uh, you know, England, they've got their own way. And in time, the Hittites and the Baal worshippers and the Dagon worshippers and the Shiva worshippers and the Jupiter worshippers and the Zeus worshippers, they'll all have their own ways to eternal bliss. No, one light. Uh, many years ago, mid to late 20th century, uh, there's a, a guy called Leslie Newbegin, who's a missionary uh, to India, Christian missionary to India. And... Uh, when he first started out as a young man, he, he'd go and he'd preach and he found out that it was really popular. And he was amazed by this. He was preaching in Hindu communities, Sikh communities, sort of animistic communities, and, and it was going down really well. And he was totally bamboozled. He'd expected a hard time. And then he realised what was going on was he was talking about Jesus and the, 
joy that Jesus brings, the forgiveness Jesus brings. And everyone was nodding along and you begin thinking, this is, yeah, I'm going to be the greatest missionary of all time. What he realized was they were nodding along and then going back to worshipping their own gods. Going back to their temples and their gujarats and their family shrines. They were nodding along because they were happy for Newbegin that he'd found Jesus. Well, Jesus sounds like a good God to add in to the shelf. For me, it's Vishnu. For you, it's Jesus. That's great. What they believed was there were many roads up the mountains. And he talks, I've probably told this story before, so apologies if uh, uh, you've heard it from me before. But he, he talks about hearing this story about an elephant. So one of the kind of Indian gurus said to him, look, you've got to understand, Bishop Newbegin, he was a bishop. We've got to understand that all the different world religions are like blind men coming to an elephant. And one blind man gets the leg of the elephant and, and sort of says, well, elephants are big and strong and sort of sturdy like a tree. And another blind man gets hold of the tail and says, um, no, no, elephants got tails, haven't they? Yeah, they have, not they? Yeah, good. Um, says, uh, no, 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 elephants, uh, they're kind of sort of long and wiggly like a snake. And another man gets hold of the tusk and says, no, no, elephants are sharp and spiky and it's kind of granite-like. And so the kind of wise men would say, each of you has got a part of the picture, but no one sees the, the full picture. Each religion has just got one corner of the truth. And Newbegin said this used to totally throw him. And it was used to make him not claim exclusivity. In other words, not claim to be right, but just claim to have part of the picture. And that would be really arrogant, the wise men would say to him. Far more humble to say you've just got part of the picture. Until it occurred to Newbegin that there was only one arrogant person in the conversations he was having. And that was the person who was saying to them, to him, sorry, you've only got part of the picture, but I am the one who can see everything. I'm the one who can see the full elephant. I'm the one who can see that all those silly little religions who think they're right have only got part of the picture. In other words, the person telling the story was the one who claimed to be able to see whilst all the religions were blind. And that for Newbegin was a sort of eye-opening moment, as it were, if you excuse the pun. He realised that everybody was actually claiming to have the whole truth. It's exactly the case now, isn't it? I remember being at university many years ago now. <laughs> and um, the, 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 I don't know why they decided to do this, but the student union back then decided to have one representative from each religion, each student uh, representative from each religion, come and speak about their faith. And so there was a Christian and a Hindu and a Jew and a Muslim, and you can imagine, a Baha'i and everything. And so we all did our piece. My friend Ted spoke for the Christians. And afterwards, the SU rep got up and said, isn't that wonderful to hear all the different views and how ultimately, really, they all believe the same thing? <laughs> Which point the Muslim said, no, 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 we don't. And she said, well, you know, but you kind of do. And then my friend Ted said, no, no, I'm agreeing with the, the, my, my Islamic friend here that we don't believe the same thing. And the Baha'i guy was like, no, come on, you kind of do. And, and it all just totally kicked off. But, but who, was being, who was being arrogant there? The nicest possible way it was the uni rep was it sweet funny little christians and muslims and hindus and sikhs with their nice little funny gods um isn't it lovely that that me as a secular westerner can see that really none of them are right and it'd be very arrogant of them to claim that they see the truth because actually i do <laughs> there is one way simeon says anna says there's one way and it's through christ we need to remember that as christians there is one door to eternal life. Our friends, our family, the whole of Leeds, the whole of the world needs to hear about it. This is why missionaries go to the end of the earth. This is why Newbegin leaves Birmingham and goes to India. 
If Hinduism saves, if Sikhism saves, why does anyone need to hear about Jesus? But all along, the Christian faith has been a missionary faith, going out with the good news. If you're not at the moment someone who'd say you're trusting Jesus, please hear this. There is no other way to eternal bliss. This is the only way. For now, for now, we are like Simeon and Anna. We're waiting. Eternal bliss has not arrived. <laughs> Someone's trying to explain the Christian faith to you. If they start telling you that once you become a Christian, you'll be wealthy and healthy and nothing will ever go wrong in your life, just run away from them. They're not telling you the Christian faith. There is a kind of prosperity gospel out there, as it's sometimes called. There's making all sorts of false promises. One day, one day all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well. But that day is not yet. And so we wait. You might know Luke wrote a second volume, Acts. And if you read Luke and Acts next to each other, that they're full of kind of sort of mirror images, parallels. So very often the early chapters of Luke are like the early chapters of Acts and so on. I'm not going to go into that loads now. But I think there's probably one of those parallels hidden here. The beginning of Luke's gospel, we get Mary and Joseph coming uh, to the temple. Verse, sorry, my eyes are going funny in the light. Verse 22, can't read the numbers. Verse 22, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they came to Jerusalem. We're going to come to this in just a sec. But after 40 days, 40 days after having her son, Mary would have to come to the temple and offer sacrifices for purification. Why? Just hold on. But 40 days, 40 days that Jesus comes to the temple. 40 days, wait. And Jesus arrives. 40 days after God comes to earth, he arrives and Simeon and Anna see him. What happens at the beginning of Acts, Luke part two? Well, Jesus has died, he's risen. And for 40 days after he's risen, Okay, he came into the world miraculously through a virgin birth. He came out of the grave miraculously, entered his new life miraculously, resurrection from the dead. And then we're told 40 days he stays, he teaches, and then he goes up to heaven. 40 days later, he leaves, ascends to heaven. 40 day waits either side. And therefore, we are, in a sense, in the same position as Simeon and Anna. We are waiting, not obviously for him to come back as a baby again, but for him to return. All Christians are waiting for the comfort, the consolation, the redemption. And so our last bit of time together, I want to just look a little bit more closely at the beginning of Luke 2 and see what enables us to wait for this comfort. And wait with even more joy and confidence. Uh, than Simeon and Anna. Two little incidents, not often spoken about. I don't think I've ever spoken about them. Uh, the circumcision of Jesus and the cleansing of Mary. Let's start with the circumcision of Jesus. Verse 21. After eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Jesus was circumcised. What's going on? What is circumcision? Circumcision, as I alluded to earlier with our baptism, it was a sign given to the boys on the eighth day, the boys of God's people. Like baptism, it has many kind of, um, many things it signifies. But let me pick just two. 
it taught God's people that there needed to be a, a cutting away of sin. Okay, circumcision is a cutting away of this, <laughs> a bodily part, isn't it? It is a shedding of blood, a cutting off. And just as baptism, water being poured is a picture of sin being washed away, the cutting off was a picture of the need for the cutting off of sin, the cutting away of sin. We know that because at various points in the Old Testament, God says to his people, you've circumcised yourselves, your flesh, but you've not circumcised your hearts. Circumcision was meant to be a physical picture of a spiritual reality, just like baptism. Okay, it was never magic. It was never just about being a Jewish person or something because you could join. It's not just about having Abraham in your DNA. You could join as an Ethiopian or Egyptian or a Philistine. You join, you get circumcised. So it's not about earthly things or just family things. It was a physical sign of a spiritual reality. The circumcision of the heart, the cutting away of the sinful nature, rebellion against God. So it was this cutting off that both encouraged and warned Israel. You had that sign in your flesh, if you were a boy at least, that, that said your sinful nature needs to be cut away. So keep trusting in God to do that. Because if you don't, you will be cut off. And time and again, God's threat to his people was, if you don't trust me, if you don't embrace the realities to which your circumcision points, in other words, the great sacrifice that will save you, then you yourself will be cut off. So it's both a promise and a warning. Baptism again is like that. Many of you will have been baptised. Now, however the water came over you, and I really don't think there's much in the New Testament that tells you how exactly the water needs to be applied to you. But however the, the water was put on you, if you're a Christian, the, the water is both a promise and a warning to you. It is a promise that if you embrace Christ, your sins will be washed away. But at the same time, it's a warning to us that the waters throughout the scriptures are, are the, the, the means that God uses to divide his people. Right in Genesis, right at the beginning, you know, the land comes, the waters are divided, the land comes up. But then the flood waters come and divide God's people, Noah and his family, from those who reject him. When we get to the Exodus, the waters, the Red Sea parts and divide God's people, the Israelites, from the Egyptians. Waters are dividing signs because they are signs of judgment water destroys if you're not safely under god's protection destroyed in the flood destroyed in the red sea and that's why jesus calls his death a baptism he says to the disciples can you be baptized with the baptism that i'm going to receive now he says this long after he's been actually baptized in the jordan he's talking about his death because he's saying look what baptism pictures that cleansing for you could only happen if your sin is destroyed, if your sin is buried under the judgment waters of God. And the only way you will find safety is if those waters fall on someone else, fall on me. That's why Jesus calls his death a baptism, because the floods of God's judgment roll over him. Well, so too with his circumcision. Circumcision spoke to the Jewish people that their sinful nature needed to be cut off because sinners had to be cut off from God's people, but they knew they were sinners. And so they looked forward to the day when someone would be cut off instead of them. In fact, that's probably why, again, I don't want to be too kind of medical and graphic this morning for pretty obvious reasons, um, but that's probably why the mark is where it was. It wasn't a nick on the finger or the ear. It was a nick on the part of the body that produces the next generation. Abram was told that salvation would come from his seed, 
And so circumcision always pointed onwards in time. One day, one of your seed, one of your descendants will save. On and on and on it went. And no one could do it until Jesus turns up. And the great surprise ought to be for us that he is circumcised. Why would Jesus need to be circumcised? He's pure. He has no sin that needs cutting off. And why would he take a sign that points to the Messiah, points to the one who would be cut off when he is that one? It ought not to make sense until you realize that Jesus has come down to identify with his people. He has come down to be circumcised for us. In fact, Paul and Colossians called Jesus' death his circumcision. Cutting off language. What happens to Jesus on the cross? Well, Isaiah, again, Isaiah, it's all Isaiah. He was cut off from the land of the living. He fulfills what this sign was all about. For him, his circumcision was a sign that he would stand in the place of his people. For him, it meant not blessing, not appointing a way to other people, but a taking on himself the willingness to be cursed instead of them. Often at Christmas, people talk about how wonderful it is that God came down to identify with us, to be among us. And that is true. People talk about how wonderful it is to have a God who knows what it's like to walk in our shoes, to suffer. And that is true. But it's more than that, isn't it? Children, imagine, okay, imagine you, uh, you break your leg, okay? Really gruesome, gory, there's blood everywhere, it's really... Um, and the ambulance comes, you think, oh, phew, the ambulance is here. And the ambulance man j- jumps out, the paramedic jumps out and says, oh, broken leg, blood, guts, gore. That must be awful, it must be so painful. And you say, yeah, it really is, really is. And it says, well, let me help. And then he gets out a gun and shoots himself in the leg and breaks his own leg and his own blood and guts and gore start going over. And then he says, look, I can suffer with you. I know what it's like to suffer a broken leg. How would you feel? Feel pretty miffed, wouldn't you? So what use is that to me? I mean, it's sort of nice that you can understand, but it's not going to help me, is it? Now, I'm not undermining the very great truth that God has come down and walked in our shoes. It is a wonderful thing that he understands, but he did not come down just to understand. He came down to heal. He came down to be cursed so that you could be blessed, to be actually circumcised, actually cut off, to be actually baptized, to go into those waters of judgment so that you might be spared. Isn't that incredible? God came to earth Purely to be cursed. You look at your situation and think, well, there is no consolation. There is no comfort. Jesus Christ has not brought me endless bliss. He's brought me, frankly, endless trouble. And you start wondering, does he really love me? Am I really safe? Will this ever end? Will I ever get out of this darkness? Right on the eighth day of his life, a sign is put in his flesh. A wound is given to Jesus. Whereby he pledges to us, I would rather be cursed than you miss out on endless bliss. I would rather be submerged under the floods of God's wrath, the horror of which, frankly, you can't begin to understand than you suffer that fate. That is why I've come down at Christmas. That is how much God loves us. Circumcised. In order to bring cleansing, much more briefly, to see Mary then goes on to be cleansed. 
23, uh, sorry, 22, Jesus presented to the Lord. And then verse 24, Mary offers sacrifices according to what's said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Uh, in the, the Jewish religious system as laid out in Leviticus, there were various things that could make you ceremonially unclean. Now, not sinful. Sometimes people who aren't Christians get hold of Leviticus and say, look, isn't God horrible? You know, what, why, why is he so against giving birth? Isn't he anti-women? You know, he, giving birth makes you unclean. God's saying giving birth is sinful. No, no, unclean doesn't mean sinful. It was picture language. The whole cleanliness system was picture language. Three things could make you unclean. Touching a dead body could make you unclean. Any kind of bodily emission could make you unclean. And then sort of skin diseases could make you unclean. Why? Because they're all associated with death. They were pictures, pictures of death, life leaving you. And pictures too of the kind of the grime on the inside of us, our hearts, which are really unclean because of our sin, bursting out. So it wasn't that it was sinful to give birth, obviously not. But rather that the picture system had been set up to show that really we are all unclean. Even Mary, Holy Mary, Mother of God, as the Roman Catholics pray. We all need this cleansing. Without it, well, there is no salvation. We cannot clean ourselves up. We can deny that we're sinful, but it's not true. We can try and distract ourselves from our need of, of cleansing, but it won't work ultimately. We can try and diminish our, our, our uncleanness. Everybody else is at fault apart from us, but it just lies. No, we all need cleansing. We all need this circumcision of Christ. Jonathan Edwards, a minister many years ago now, 250 odd years ago, said Christ's circumcision was the first shedding of atoning blood. His whole life is bookmarked by bloodshed for us and by scars for us. Scarred by circumcision on the eighth day. Scarred as his hands were pierced on his last day. And it seems that as the disciples see the resurrected Jesus, the scars are still there. They are pledges of love to his people. Pledges that there is safety, that he is for us, that he has come to bring comfort and consolation. There may even be a hint of that in this, in this passage. Normally what happens when a, a child is brought, a firstborn son is brought in the Levitical law, is the parents would pay five shekels, five coins to redeem the son. The idea from the Old Testament was that the firstborn son was meant to serve God in the temple. But to buy back your son, you paid the five shekels so that he could stay with your family rather than go and serve in the temple. I don't know if this is reading too much into Luke or not. Decide for yourselves. But many have noticed that Mary and Joseph aren't said to have given the five shekels. Jesus is not bought back to just be a servant in Joseph's workshop. Rather, he's devoted to the Lord. In fact, you see that language being given to the Lord several times in this passage. He is going to, from his whole life, be committed to one thing. The Lord, his father, and the salvation of his people. His whole life, therefore, was lived under the curse in order that he might rescue. One day he will clothe, close sorry, the path to misery. One day, if you will come to him, he'll give you endless bliss. And the only thing you need to do to receive that is just that, receive it. Not earn it, not pay for it. 
not demand it, but receive it empty-handed. Until then, Lewis is right. The world and his wife will promise you all sorts of other ways to short-term happiness. And the thing is, they might work. Sort of. Short-term. In Lewis's language. While it lasts. But Christ will return. He goes at the beginning of Acts. But the promise is he'll return. And that is when that door to eternal bliss will be opened and all his people will be shepherded in. And that is when, with much weeping and gnashing of teeth, those who've turned their back on him will take that other door through to eternal punishment. Have a hard life is now. Do not doubt that God is for you. His wounds of his flesh at the beginning and the end of his life, the shedding of his blood from his birth to his death, pledge, I am for you. I have come to be cursed so that you might be blessed. And that is what Christmas is about, the pledge of God's life for yours. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we are so weak in faith. Help us overcome our unbelief, we pray. Uh, Allow us, particularly today, we pray, um, to look ahead confidently to the consolation of your people, to the great comforting of your people when Christ returns. Father, might we not dread that day, but look forward to it. Would we say with Paul, for for us to live is Christ, to die is gain. Would we pray as the scriptures pray at their closing, come Lord Jesus, and look forward to that day confidently, not because of anything in ourselves, but because of his wounds in our place. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you came to open the door to endless bliss. Pour your spirit on us now that we might hold fast to that hope and persevere whatever darkness we walk through in order to arrive safely home. We commit ourselves to you in your own name. Amen.